Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and I'm joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine, Maxim Panchenko. Hello, Maxim. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me in this conversation. Traditionally, in this monthly episode, we're trying to look back and analyze what happened in Ukraine and around Ukraine in July 2021. So, what were the key events and trends in this month? What do you think? So, speaking about domestic policy, we, of course, are going to talk about the resignation of Mr. Avakov, who has been the Minister of the Interior for uh, seven years. Then we're going to talk also about the commemoration of the uh, Christianization of uh, the Kyiv Rus. Uh, after that, we're going to switch to developments in the international arena. This would be the Nord Stream 2, developments around which have been quite frustrating for Ukraine. We're going to touch upon the article authored by Vladimir Putin, Russia's president. We're going to talk about the alleged pivot of Ukraine to China and we'll finish up by a short conversation about the common aviation area agreement since it seems to be finally looming ahead of Ukraine. So uh, many topics indeed. So we are touching upon the internal politics and one of the key events of course is the resignation of well, a minister that uh, was considered to be almost eternal, Mr. Senovakov, the, the key policeman of Ukraine. And um, in, on the international arena, lots of things have happened in the Nord Stream and this Ch- Chinese vector, very important, and this EU-Ukraine, um, basically, relations. And we are entering August, in which Ukraine will celebrate 30th anniversary of its independence. So it's very, it would be very interesting ne- next month when we will probably will have an overview of these 30 years as well. But let's start with this internal affairs. So, resignation of Avakov, why do you think it is important? Well, uh, first of all, it is very important because the situation around Mr. Avakov has always been very opaque, especially under this new administration. Um, Nobody really understood or knew the reasons why he was uh, so invincible. Uh, Of course, it can be understood that he had a lot of power because of the structures he had below himself. You know, he was uh, the minister of the interior, he had uh, real power, real structures, but at the same time, uh, nobody really understood uh, the reasons why Zelensky needed him so much for so long. Uh, Was he a part of a deal with somebody? Uh, Or maybe he was strong enough himself to remain in the picture? So, uh, this this feeling of uh, some things remaining unsaid uh, is what makes the situation quite uh, quite unique and quite maybe frustrating for, for the public. Let, let's analyze. So let, let's try to th- to to tell our listeners who is Mr. Avakov. So uh, Mr. Avakov is one of the you know long-lasting Ukrainian politicians. So mm-hmm. he have been in politics for quite a long time, for decades, and uh, he was the one of the longest ministers because I mean he he survived I think four governments: the first government of Arseniy Yatsenyuk in 2014, the second government of Arseniy Yatsenyuk, then the government of uh, Volodymyr Groysman, then the government of Oleksiy Honcharuk, the first government under under Zelensky, and then the second government under Zelensky of Mr. Shmihal. So, uh, four governments, two presidents, <laughs> and it was fantastic how he managed to uh, to you know to 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 stay in power. 
And uh, according to some rumors, he was indeed irreplaceable because, for example, when Honcharu government came to power, it was mainly young people, and Avakov was the only one who had this, you know, institutional institutional memory. So sometimes the rumors are saying that he would he would advise to this particular minister what to do in in in, uh, in his or her area of competence. But then let's not forget that he, he played a very important role. Uh, in 2014 to stop this uh, occupation of eastern uh, Ukrainian cities. So he probably one, was one of the people who saved Kharkiv in the same way as, in the same way as Mr. Kolomoisky, now the notorious oligarch, was very important uh, person to save Dnipro. Right, yes. and uh, unfortunately, there were no such people for Donetsk and Luhansk. So let's not forget this, and uh, let's also not forget the, this, you know, very dubious reputation that he has in Ukrainian politics, because some people consider him as a kind of um, incarnation of evil. The key nickname for Avakov is Chort which means... The devil? Well, maybe not the devil. So the devil is the Yavel, but Chort is, you know, a, a lesser devil, a, you know, a part of this entourage of devil, I would say, in this way. Uh, so, some other people, especially in the surroundings of, of, of the party, which was called, which is called uh, the People's Front, Narodny Front, the party of uh, Yatsenyuk, and also Avakov, people are saying that, look, he is a, is a person who is who is has some you know strategic thinking whatever so very ambiguous personality yes but in, in this context it's uh, very important to mention that uh, there have been uh, quite numerous um, I wouldn't not say that necessarily this was were scandals but different problems for instance when it comes to the impossibility to uh, investigate the murder for instance of mr. Sharamet or uh, some incidents that have uh, happened with uh, the killing of a, 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 a little boy in uh, Kaharovik and also when it comes to rumors that uh, he uh, may have controlled uh, different right wings uh, factions and so on uh, I mean like in the streets not not in any powerhouses but uh, against this backdrop uh, the argument about his being irreplaceable uh, it takes on a, even a bigger meaning because even if against the backdrop of these problems he still was not replaced he must have been somebody very important or very powerful or very effective so in, in other areas so but again this situation around him being so opaque uh, I wonder if anybody will ever know all the details of this story. Yeah, and I think if, if we look for the reasons why he resigned, basically the, the common understanding is that Zelensky asked him to resign and it was mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, a very peaceful uh, divorce, I would say, that Zelensky really needed him in the first years of, of his presidency because Avakov was controlling the, the police and, you know, the internal interior forces and uh, he was helping Zelensky at least he was kind of a, the silent partner uh, of Zelensky even during the presidential campaign, even though he was in, in the power uh, when the, uh, the, the President Poroshenko was in power, right? And um, I think one of the reasons is that Zelensky doesn't need him anymore because he kind of secured his power everywhere else. 
So the log logical reason, uh, both for security reason, but also for financial maybe reasons, we don't know all this because we understand that, well, quite probably such structures as Ministry of Interior have always been like that in Ukraine. If you take the law enforcement services, it's also a big um, a field of gray or not that gray even money, right? So all these tri tributes paying and all this you know money which are coming from uh, from the low levels to the higher levels and we cannot say that ukrainian police have been really reformed uh, during these years so maybe for for the current administration it's also very important you know a tool of influence uh, the person who they appointed basically a new minister mr monastirsky seems to be not a very you know active political player and they don't need active political players, obviously. Uh, so it is also an, an important thing. Another version uh, is that, well, uh, the administration, the the, uh, the Zelensky office are waiting, or or even Avako was, you know, kind of waiting this. Uh, Problems, some problems, economic problems, public health problems in autumn. So probably he doesn't want to take responsibility for that. Although there are different rumors and some of them are saying that, look, at a certain moment, Zelensky will sacrifice Shmihal and appoint Avaka as a prime minister. So we don't know, of course, the, what would be the, the consequences. But I think the major consequence is that right now Zelensky is really unchallenged. And it's a very big paradox in Ukrainian politics because uh, he's, he's still over, over two years in power. Everybody were, uh, was, you know, saying that he will lose in popularity. He, he is losing in popularity, but not that dramatically. He's still the leader in the polls with, I think, some 25 or something percent for the first round, which is huge. And uh, and he is now securing all the rest, this infrastructure of, you know, administration. Um, so it's it's a remarkable thing. I don't know whether it's a good thing or bad thing, or a tragic thing, a funny thing. But the thing is that uh, a person with this comedian background is now the most unchallenged politician probably in Ukrainian history. At the same time, I think that uh, a challenge in his term for him uh, is that um, he risks having his surroundings falling apart just like the way his party, well, maybe is not falling apart, but there are certainly different fractions within his faction in the parliament. Uh, so there are, uh, you know, different uh, representatives. There, there is the core of the party, but then there is Mr. Buzhansky, for instance, you know, and several other people. So maybe, so there is a risk for Zelensky that this surrounding his building, that maybe it will not be as unanimous as he wants it to be. So, uh, of course, only only time will will show. But at the same time, uh, yes, as you said, Zelensky's popularity is uh, still quite afloat, uh, which I think uh, is playing in his hands. So, I think yes. So he it can split apart all this, you know, political political structure. Would not even call it a, a true political party, political movement, political phenomenon, sort of the people. But again, uh, it is not splitting apart with the speed that was forecasted, but many by many Pretty journalists so. or political political experts. And I think their strategy right now is to appoint kind of a key enemies for in 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 both pro-Russian and pro-Western spectrum. So in the pro-Russian spectrum the 
kind of a demonized enemy uh, and here I would say that it is it is probably a good thing of this uh, this politics is Medvedchuk and all those pro-Russian pro-Kremlin politicians with uh, opposition platform party but on the pro-Western spectrum this is Poroshenko and all the people around him so he's trying to say look I'm I'm in between these two two you know two two very in, in his rhetoric, radical wings. I'm a kind of a this centrist in between and something. And maybe this is something that um, attracts, uh, still attracts citizens. So let's let's now go to, to um, a very sensitive topic that you mentioned at the beginning, and this is international topic, the Nord Stream. Mm -hmm. So uh, for Ukrainians, July was not a very pleasant month since we have seen an agreement between uh, Joe Biden administration and Germany uh, uh, about Nord Stream Two. Why Ukraine was was so unhappy about this event? Well, first of all, we need to look uh, at the contents of the agreement reached between the U.S. and uh, Germany, and then we need to look about the uh, broader context uh, when it comes to diplomacy around this issue. So, in the former case, um, the core thing is that it was agreed between the two parties that the Nord Stream 2 would be finished. It was quite evident that things were developing that way, but uh, when it is agreed on a summit between the two states, well, that's kind of, you know, coup de grâce for Ukraine in this, in this diplomatic battle. So, um, yes, so the Nord Stream 2 would be finished. Uh, Germany commit, uh, commits to uh, protect Ukraine's energy security and security in general in case uh, it is being encroached by Russia through, you know, this hybrid warfare, through uh, gas pipes and so on, through energy sphere. And also there is a, a so-called Green Fund uh, established in favor of Ukraine, uh, where Germany commits to uh, deposit around a billion dollars, euros, I don't remember, uh, for Ukraine's green transformation, for the development of the energy sector of Ukraine, and so on and so forth. So, at the first, uh, at the first glance, it appears that while there are interests of Germany, it pursues its uh, uh, this interest, and then it proposes some, uh, you know, some trade-off for Ukraine to, you know, to soften the pill, the pill. But at the same time, if you look at the scope of this green fund which is going to be, yes, it's going to be a billion dollars. But at the same time, Ukraine earns annually around $1.5 billion in uh, gas transit. And uh, the current agreement that we have with Russia about the gas trans transit through Ukraine, it expires in uh, 2024. And when it was concluded almost two years ago, from the very outset, it was not so beneficial for Ukraine when compared to previous agreements on gas transit. So now Ukraine is um, kind of cornered. Of course, to an, to an extent, it's, it's a problem of Ukraine why we did not see it coming sooner. But this is not something that makes Germany and the US in this sense look better. Uh, 
And of course, there is the whole another story with uh, the position of the United States in this sense, because previously Ukraine could more or less count on the U.S. opposition to this project. And now Mr. Biden uh, is doing something that is quite unexpected here in Ukraine. He is basically not doing anything anymore to stop uh, the uh, pipeline from inauguration. And uh, this kind of poses a broader question about the uh, U.S.-Ukraine relations, uh, because this is some this is a big thing that uh, us is abandoning ukraine on yeah let's not forget of course <clears throat> it will be naive to think that you know everybody should think about ukrainian interests of course so. and uh, it's 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 not the ukrainian argument that you forgot forgot ukraine it's basically an argument that europe uh, germany has forgotten europe because it's not only about Ukraine, it's also about Poland, it's about Slovakia, it's about Hungary, it's about Czech Republic, etc. It's about the Baltic states. Uh, so kind of a Germany was pushing for its own interests. And uh, the, the problem is with the Gazprom is, of course, the legal problem. And therefore we have this, you know, for example, the ruling of the European Court of Justice about Opal uh, pipeline. But the key problem is obvious, is that Gazprom owns both gas, to the, the resource and the transportation so it is something that is unthinkable in you know this European energy packages and all this stuff so uh, of course given this situation it is for, for Ukrainians it is quite uh, difficult to believe any any you know any kind of any expectations or any promises that it will be protected one day etc and one of the key issues is of course the security issue because uh, Nord Stream is not only about the gas and money Nord Stream is also about the strategic place of Ukraine and for example imagine if Russia at a certain moment says well we supply all the gas we need through Nord Stream 1 Nord Stream 2 we don't need the Ukrainian gas transportation system with all this you know underground storage facilities etc so we can for example well, th this is a factor which can encourage Russia for further military escalation or something like this, right? Because if Ukraine is not important anymore in, in Russia's relations with Europe, it can do anything it wants. Of course, and I think this is something everybody understands, and Germany and the US too. It's just that, uh, you see, the wording of the agreement reached between the US and Germany says that in case something similar will happen, for instance, there would be hybrid warfare on the part of Russia, Russia would try to uh, use uh, energy resources as leverage against Ukraine, it is stipulated in the agreement that Germany will uh, go to great lengths to help Ukraine. But going to great lengths to help Ukraine is not solving the problem. Attempting to negotiate is not the positive outcome of negotiations in which there is a whole another party, hostile party, which is Russia. So basically this agreement between the US and Germany cannot guarantee anything about the outcomes uh, of the issue because the issue depends not only on the signatories to this agreement, Germany and the US, but also on this uh, other actor, Russia, which is totally unpredictable. Well, I think it's important for, for, for Europe also to, you know, to play by its own rules and, uh, you know, to push Russia also to, you know, to proceed. If Russia is a main supplier of gas, it should itself be ready to, you know, it's, it sounds utopian, but it should apply 
the, the, the European rules to itself. And that will mean, for, for example, if Russia enters the European market, then European companies should enter the Russian market, for example, and at some point say, look, the gas that we will supply through Nord Stream will not be the gas of Gazprom or because it will be the gas of European companies who produce, who, who take the production. But of course, it sounds utopian, but I think that could, that could be a position, for example, a political position, because right now we have Gazprom, you know, when you see the European Champions League in football, or you see the uh, Euro Championship, in, you, you see the Gazprom as a key uh, sponsor. And it is clearly a company that violates all the European rules. And it is the key sponsor of uh, European championships. It sounds absolutely ridiculous. Okay, let's go further and talk about, uh, about some other issues. So you mentioned this, you know, Chinese issue. Why it is also important? So, yes, news related to China when it comes to Ukraine's foreign policy vector. Uh, they have emerged every now and then, but every so often uh, during uh, the recent weeks. And on the one hand, these news have been quite miscellaneous. There have been no you know, specific and very big narrative about our you know, relations with uh, China. But the very frequency with which similar news appear in uh, Ukrainian news suggests that uh, there may be some brainstorming going on on Bankova Street uh, about uh, maybe bigger cooperation with uh, China. I mean, purely economic uh, reasons are quite clear because China is Ukraine's biggest uh, trade partner if we do not consider the European Union as a whole entity, if we look country by country, so China is bigger. Uh, so, but at the same time, there is so much politics attached to this uh, alleged movement to, uh, to China that uh, I don't think that risks are worth the play. Yes. Yeah, and of course, Ukraine was in the previous years was quite uh, reluctant to develop its relations to, to China with China. And for example, Ukraine is not on the map of this uh, one belt, one one road uh, initiative. Uh, and we understand, on the other hand, that Ukraine, for example, as an agricultural supplier, one of the one of the uh, the biggest growing agricultural suppliers in the world should be very much interested in not only China but Southeast Asia as a whole because the whole process of urbanization that is going there means that people need more and more food, for example. And uh, Ukraine, when you when you look at the Ukrainian exports to China, it's basically agricultural exports. So uh, of course it is very important. On the other hand, politically, well. Uh, there is a risk that at some point the Ukrainian political elite will say, well, Russia, of course not. We are not. It's toxic and it's an aggressor, whatever. Europe and United States, well, they are demanding too much. <laughs> they are kind of, you know, they are demanding too much. They always demand reform and they're not delivering. So they're not really helping us because look at Nord Stream, uh, look, at, look at some other issues, look at the way how they don't really talk about NATO membership or EU membership at all. So this is not a, a, an issue on the agenda. And they will say, look, let's reorient our policy. So let's maybe come back to a kind of a Kuchma era policy, multi-vector policy, but this time it will be not between Russia and the West, but between China and the West. And this is quite probable. Yes. 
and uh, we don't know actually what China will demand because obviously they will not demand a transparent judiciary system, but maybe they will demand, you know, well, give us some land for 50 years renting or even maybe we will buy it or something like that. So, uh, or give us access to all your, for example, all your telecommunications network. And we understand how toxic China can be in terms of, you know, data protection or non-protection, how about human rights. human rights in the digital area, about surveillance, etc. So we can, at a, at, at a certain point, Ukraine can come into a very interesting, you know, dilemma between, for example, the European values, which are focusing on individual rights, uh, protection of individual rights, etc., and Chinese values, which are focusing on effectiveness, surveillance, uh, big brothers watching you, etc. Yes, and this is the crossroads Ukraine does not want to find itself at, uh, because there is this uh, broader context of the of the standoff between the United States and China. So uh, even when we were talking about the Nord Stream 2, one of the reasons why they say Biden was uh, willing to show goodwill to Russia and you know to let this thing happen with the pipeline is that because he wanted to have Russia either on his side or at least neutral. In, in relations that's, with China. That's a fantastic Western utopia. So, Well, yes, but that's real politics these days. But interestingly, that any, you know, politician at a, at a certain point makes this mistake. I mean, let's, let's, yes. uh, let's, um, let's try to be friends with Russia, at least in some areas. Uh, mm -hmm. Macron tried to do that. And it's all, uh, it's all about China. We understand that it's all about China. So let's, let's um, engage Russia to our side in order to... That Russia helps us to, you know, counteract China. The problem is, and it is Ukrainian problem as well. That China is not going, not, not willing to uh, to counteract Russia at all in any any field. So, for example, Ukraine will Ukraine get some political preferences, some political. I mean, will China, for example, be at least not that neutral, but at least I mean, some criticize Russia for annexation of Crimea? I'm not sure about that. Uh, especially if we take the Hong Kong issue and all the rest, you know. China, first of all, is not very much interested in those things. Uh, you know, in in doing those uh, statements, it has uh, up to this day uh, it has uh, abstained in you know UN votings on Crimea and so on and so forth. So it just feels comfortable not doing so and just doing doing economics. And uh, we need to understand that uh, we're betting too much. You know, cooperation with the EU and the US, the issue of values and how this looks in the eyes of the West, uh, for the sake of something that is very disproportionate. Because Ukraine, for China, is so small of a fraction of its economy, of its trade balance. Of course, China is important for Ukraine, but vice versa, not so much. So we're, we're you know, committing to being a bargaining chip while betting so much on this, this does not seem to be... Yeah, and, and, and the question, what is the final point, what is the final goal? To make Ukraine kind of a gate, uh, like, there is a great book by Serhii Plokhi, The Gates of Europe, right, about the history of Ukraine. But do we want to become a gates of Europe for China, for example, in the economic terms? I mean, be uh, become what Belarus tried to become under Lukashenko and, and you know, become kind of a basis also for for Chinese goods, for exporting. I'm not sure that this is this is also a good uh, final goal. I think, I think there is um, a vision Mr. Zelensky has. Uh, 
that appears to be true from this uh, intergovernmental agreement between Beijing and Kyiv that has been uh, recently signed about the investments in Ukraine's infrastructure, because it uh, provides for Chinese investments in railroads, uh, in roads, in uh, seaports of Ukraine. So maybe Zelensky uh, quite uh, along the line of his, uh, you know, intentions to uh, develop Ukraine's infrastructure uh, that was embedded in his promises when he was elected. So maybe he's just trying to find ways to finance this and he has stumbled across the idea with China, but somebody needs to explain all the risks to him. So maybe that's what everything is stemming from, but this is uh, I think that they're just saying that, look, China is so far away, it is so, it is so unknown for us that probably the danger is not that big and we are trying to build an infrastructure and this is very good because under Zelensky we really finally have the, the, this big construction program. We see the roads being built uh, everywhere in Ukraine. The question we can ask uh, where the funds coming from, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, let's talk about a- another thing that you mentioned, Mr. Putin published an article, he tried to play a great historian and he published an article uh, arguing basically, and by the way, an article in Russian but also in Ukrainian, translated into mm-hmm. Ukrainian, arguing that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. So what do you say about this article? Well, first of all, it seems uh, like something very unlogical if we want people who want to publish it on Ukrainian on the Kremlin side. But jokes aside, uh, I think that uh, there is, you know, some danger stemming from it, from it, and I and I would say that the danger is not very little, because first of all, it may not be a very big thing for a president to write an article, but it also is quite an unusual thing. For Putin to write an article, and the subject is very specific. It's for, it's about us, and the fact, for instance, that this article needs to be scrutinized and has already been ordered to be scrutinized in uh, the Russian armed forces during their trainings, their political trainings. Um, this is something very frustrating and very endangering for Ukraine. So yes, and let's not forget that it is not a coming back uh, just to you know Soviet propaganda. It's coming much more deeper because during Soviet times, uh, the key idea was that Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians are different peoples. They are different nations with different languages, but they form kind of a you know they they had some some you know common roots in the past in the medieval history, and therefore they are these brotherly nations. But they they are separate nations. This idea of one nation comes from Russian imperial historiography in the 19th century, which would be saying that there is one so-called great Russian nation, which encompasses the the Moscovites, the, the, the big Russians, um, the Ukrainians, which were called uh, by, by them little Russians, and the Belarusians, the white Russians, right? So it's, it's, it's a much more archaic, I would say, argument. And therefore, it is so dangerous because, I mean, if there is only one nation, one not, why not to absorb it, you know, as, as uh, Putin is now trying to do with Belarus. Another very dangerous thing is that basically the article contained a kind of a, an idea that we should, we should revise borders even further because Ukraine is not a country that has a natural borders that, you know, we, we just give, give it, you know, some territories from Russian, Russian empire, etc. And therefore, we should revise them even farther. For example, the, the idea that well, we should come and come back probably to the borders of 1922, 
when Ukraine entered, when the Soviet Union was established. And this meant that Ukraine should be not only without Crimea, maybe without parts of Donbass, but also without Galicia, which was at the same uh, yes. at, the, at the time yeah. in Poland, without you know Bukovina, which was in Romania, without uh, Transcarpathia, which was in Hungary. So let's just you know this phantom idea, this phantasm, which is very real in Russian discourse, that Ukraine should be split up. You know, we should just you know uh, slice it in different parts. The worrying two questions I keep asking myself in this sense is uh, why now, and why at all. Because, for instance, well, you remember that uh, similar pieces, and I think that this is a noticeable piece for a president to write an article on this topic, did not even appear before the war broke out. So, uh, when, you know, 2014, Ukraine is going westward, Russia needs to stop it, and then, and then, and then Putin does not write an article to uh, justify what was going to come. The entire war that has been dragging for, you know, seven years and on. But now, it's, you know, it's, it instills a feeling, this article, that something is about to change, that something is going to escalate. Because Putin has been waging war for seven years without needing to write articles. So th- something allegedly needs to become more escalating? Because, well, I would not call it escalation, because uh, I think the strategy is, and we have seen it uh, through Zelensky presidency as well, step by step, you know, this creating this uh, this feeling that, look, we should forget about these atrocities, we should forget about uh, this animosity, well, well we, we quarreled a little bit in our, but in our house, but it's our house. We're still the same people, the same nation, and the narrative that Ukrainians are Nazis Is, 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 is increasingly turning into the narrative that Ukrainians are, well, a little bit uh, worse Russians, but still Russians. And I think this is very dangerous because, and this is why all these identity issues which are now in Ukraine, which is very poorly understood by the West, uh, are so important. My argument is that, uh, you know, identity idea, so I would say this emancipation of Ukrainian community as a kind of political national community with its language, with its church, and with all the rest, is no less important than all this fight for individual rights and for democracy. Because if we lose identity, well, Russia will uh, absorb us very quickly because it is all this imperial idea, Russian imperial idea, has been built upon the idea of assimilation, not only of occupation. Assimilation is when you say, well, the other, the difference does not exist. That's that what they made with Belarus, actually. Why, uh, well, Belarusian people are so heroic in, in their confrontation with this authoritarian regime, but sometimes they um, maybe didn't understand in the previous years, I hope they understand it better now, that if they lose their idea of, you know, Belarusian community, Belarusian language, Belarusian culture, Belarusian literature, as, as something separate, something unique, If, if they lose this idea, they will lose even the fight for individual rights and for liberal rights. Let's probably, uh, we'll finish on that and uh, let's talk a little bit about, about cultural issues. We really celebrated again uh, the anniversary of this baptism of, of medieval Rus. Just to our listeners to understand that medieval Rus or the so-called Kievan Rus is not the same as Russia. Uh, uh, as, uh, for example, the 
some also the uh, Putin is saying uh, basically for, for a very long period of time uh, the territory of today's Russia was called Moscovy and the and the territories of today's Ukraine and Belarus were called Rus but this is another question so uh, this anniversary also raises the question of Christianity in Ukraine and Orthodox Christianity and it's very interesting that it is very diverse as well so we have seen you know we, we are seeing this church which is a Russian church which is it's calling itself Ukrainian Orthodox Church but we understand that it is subject to Moscow Patriarchy and there is this autocephalous church uh, established under previous president with the with the you know support from the economical ecumenical patriarchy Bartholomeus from Constantinople and uh, this church the so-called the Orthodox Church of Ukraine Petsu, is attracting more and more people uh, slowly but attracting more and more people and it's interesting that sociologists published a, a report asking um, for example with which church you identif identify itself so with with the Russian church or so-called OMU some 25% identify themselves, but with the Ukrainian church, over 50%. And it is also a very important factor in this, you know, understanding the Russian uh, soft power in Ukraine. Yes, and uh, it once again poses the question and illustrates how much uh, history and dates that we could otherwise just commemorate, just celebrate, they uh, all, you know, once and again they become topics of political debate and not only debate but, you know, fierce standoffs between factions, between, uh, you know, inside a, a community, inside a single country and of course this is the political question, transboundary political question with Russia. So it's it, it's a pity how much this is uh, uh, and, and similar things are instrumentalized. Yeah, and we should not forget about the church, the religious issues is one of the big factories, factors also of, of this, you know, Russian soft power in Ukraine because 25% it's less than 50% but it's still huge and all those people are uh, intoxicated with sometimes with uh, very archaic ideology and very of course anti-liberal and very aggressive towards others to add other confessions other uh, other religions other non-religious people etc we should not forget about that and the last issue you mentioned the common aviation area with the european union much more practical thing what's happening yes. there and that's why we're talking about it at the end because this is something very much lighter and very much uh, uh, more practical. So, yes, uh, finally uh, this month, uh, I think it was uh, around 12th uh, July, there was the decision of the Council of the European Union to, uh, to approve uh, the signature of the common aviation area between uh, Ukraine and the European Union. This is something that Ukraine has been waiting for, I think, around uh, 10 years or maybe even more. And uh, the, ironically, this is uh, something in the postponement of which Ukraine was not uh, guilty. There have been some bureaucratic reasons on the part of the European Union. But the thing is that finally, when we signed this uh, agreement, presumably in autumn during a summit, uh, the European low-cost carriers will be able to come to Ukraine uh, in a much bigger scope than they are now present in the Ukrainian market, and uh, this is going to be uh, this is going to contribute to flights to Europe being much cheaper and much more affordable for every uh, Ukrainian. Uh, of course, there this is 
a double-edged sword because uh, for customers this is going to be very good, but for businesses and even for big businesses like for uh, the airline owned by Mr. Kolomoisky, this is going to be a challenge uh, because of the disparity between the rules that the European carriers in Ukraine are going to play by and the Ukrainian carriers that are going uh, you know, to operate in Ukraine will have to abide by because Ukrainians, Ukrainian airlines will still need for now, uh, to pay different taxes that European carriers will not have to pay when they come to the U Ukrainian market. So that thing is still going to be sorted out. But when it comes to customers and to Ukrainians and to Europeans being able to come to Ukraine, uh, this is going to be a positive story. So welcome to every foreigner to, to, to come to Ukraine uh, when the pandemic is, is over and exploring Ukraine in all of its glory. Yeah, let's hope that Ukrainians will uh, be able to fly with a low coster to European cities and vice versa. And this is this will obviously bring us closer together. So, uh, uh, this was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, uh, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. I was joined by my colleague Maxim Panchenko analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. Follow us, uh, follow our website, ukraineworld.org, follow us on social networks, on Facebook and Twitter, and follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, Google Podcasts, and stay with us. Mm -hmm.